Well, when I finished the research for Peter five years and being, you know, paid quite well as a researcher, you know, two or three days a week, and being paid to do research is great because, you know, when you're a writer and you're trying to research something, nobody pays you anything. You don't make any money out of writing books, so I mostly don't have to tell you that. But at the end of it, I thought, oh, someone in England will look on this website and go, what great stories about the Hawkesbury. I think I'll write a novel. And I thought, I'd better get in first. Welcome to the Festival of Urbanism's Book Club podcast. You're on City Road and I'm Fenella Kernerbone. I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney and it's great to have your company. Today, Preston Peachy is speaking with Julie Jansen all about her book, Benevolence. Julie is a novelist and an award-winning poet and a Baru Burundja woman of the Darug Aboriginal Nation. Preston Peachy is a Wiradjuri and a Malyangapa man and a creative living on Bediadjil country. And if you've been listening to this podcast series, you might be interested to know that the drum interludes you hear in the middle of each episode were played by Preston. In the conversation today, Julie talks about how she interweaves her detailed historical research with fictionalised events and characters that shatter European stereotypes about Aboriginal peoples. Julie gives voice to the Aboriginal experience of the colonial invasion and early settlement of Sydney. Told through the fictional characterisation of Darug woman Murugan, Benevolence is a compelling story of first contact. Born around 1813, Murugan is part of the earliest Darug generations to experience the impact of British colonisation. It was a time of cataclysmic change and violence, but also a time of remarkable survival and resistance. At an early age, Murugan is given over to the Parramatta Native School by her Darug father. Fleeing the school in pursuit of love, she embarks on a journey of discovery and a search for a safe place to make her home. Spanning the years 1816 to 1835, Benevolence is set around the Diarubin Hawkesbury River area, the home of the Darug people. It's a fascinating discussion that's told from an Aboriginal point of view, and it's a must-read, now available on audiobook and soon to be released outside Australia by HarperCollins. And now over to Preston, speaking with Julie via Zoom. I've, uh, I just also want to start formally, uh, Annie Julie, by acknowledging that I, um, I am dialing into you from what, what I know as Betty Eagle country over next to the river that I understand is the, is the Gulayari, also known as the Cooks River, um, an important waterway. And I acknowledge that I have the privilege of living on Betty Eagle country. That's actually the country that I was born on and I've traveled a lot around. I uh, lived in Dubbo for a little bit and my family essentially found a home in Emu Plains with my mum and I even lived overseas for a couple of years, but I've managed to wind up back in Betty Eagle country and um, it's where I brought my daughter into the world. So I'm very grateful to be here on this Aboriginal land. So thank you for your time. Um, uh, can I reply by acknowledging the land I'm on as well? Please. I'd like to acknowledge I'm on the land of the, the Brinja Yuan people of, um, of Maruya on the south coast. I'm honoured to be allowed to live here on this land uh, in this great nation of Yuan that extends uh, from up past Nara all the way down to Eden. But my home country is um, Darubin and of the Barabarangal clan of Darug Nation. Thank you. 
I know I should also identify that I um, am a Wiradjuri and moaning up a man. My father grew up on Wiradjuri country and his connections down south to Wiradjuri peoples. And my mother, her father, is a moaning up a man from northwest New South Wales. So, but I very much born down here in the city and uh, feel very much like a city slicker. <laughs> but the few times that I do get out to the country, I feel very much at home in the city. So, um, I just firstly, thank you for the writing benevolence, first of all. I um, it's sat next to my bed for a little while. Yes, there it is. Beautiful sort of suggestive cover. And um, it was really... Um, quite a journey. So thank you, first of all, for, for writing such a book about the lands where I grew up on. You know, I found it, I felt a real personal uh, lesson there. I, it felt like a really, there, there's quite a few parts of the book that felt that I, that I, I sort of thought sounded very personal to you. And I, or, or sounded like at least they carry a personal connection. And I'd love to hear more about your journey um, as, a, as a person to, how'd you come to writing this story? Uh, I think, Coming to write about the Hawkesbury River really goes back to childhood. Uh, my memories of going with my father, Neville, and uh, my brothers. I think we drove up in an old Buick, I think it was, up to Palm Beach and he'd rent a rowboat usually, couldn't afford a motorboat, which sometimes had issues around it when there was a storm coming, I can tell you. <laughs> Luckily, he's a very big, strong Aboriginal man and could row really well. And uh, we'd row out, uh, you know, past Broken Bay and around past Flint and Steel there at the mouth of the Hawkesbury, and uh, we'd catch fish. And sometimes silvertail would be running, uh, sil uh, what are they called? No, yellowtail, sorry. And uh, But we'd catch all sorts of fish. And uh, and sometimes he'd drive up to uh, Commodore Heights, in the, which is now Karingai National Park up there, and we'd, he'd, we'd walk down the hill carrying big old haversacks mm. full of mainly tins of baked beans and sweet corn and, you know, I mean, Pretty bad, really. And uh, we'd camp in a cave, and uh, Dad would just make beds out of um, out of ferns, and he'd put army greatcoats over the beds. Bloody freezing! <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> kids, kids from kind of working class Sydney. It's his idea of an adventure for us. Uh, but I think of that as a very Aboriginal experience. Uh, and Dad never ever talked about being Aboriginal, but every single action, he, you know, mm. you know, he, he was a very Aboriginal man without it saying the words. And uh, so I think that those memories of the Hawkesbury is the reason why later on in life I decided to write um, a book about reflecting the history of the Hawkesbury from an Aboriginal point of view. Yeah, wow, that's really incredible. And I remember reading it, and there, there were a few uh, scenes in the in the book where I really felt, and maybe it's because I've spent a lot of time, you know, working and just sort of enjoying uh, living on on these lands. And there was a few scenarios, like the like down at, at Waran, and even um, just like when they're watching the short, what, are the ships getting loaded? I think, yeah. And even, but also like really, the, I think the first time it really struck me was in the bush. Uh, Mary or, or is it Murrigan? Am I saying Murrigan? Yeah, Murrigan. Thank you. And when she's uh, when she first goes back to the bush after after being in the in the institute or at the school, and sort of finding her place amongst the Aboriginal people, that felt really vivid to me. And it was interesting to sort of hear through her lens, like um, navigate finding her place. I'd love to hear more about how you sort of crafted that that part of the story. Well, I think. Um place when you're writing a historical novel uh, because you're dealing with true history and it's it's like a real juggling act to try and create a fictional story but 
that, that, that reads true. And in my case, writing an Aboriginal story is really, really important that it that it's accurate as far as I can gather and uh, and that it honours the ancestors in a very deep way. And because um, I lived up uh, on the northern beaches for quite a while, I was very familiar with Palm Beach and the story of Palm Beach. A man called Bowen Bungaree lived on Palm Beach. And Bowen Bungaree is a very famous Aboriginal person. He's the son of Chief Bungaree, and I'm actually related to that family through marriage on my, my great aunt. Um, uh, she was uh, married, to, you know, my great uncle um, wasn't a descendant from Bungaree, but uh, my great aunt was. And um, the story of Bowen Bungaree living on that beach and being a black tracker and having a, a big boat to go fishing with and having a gun, and he actually defended the early settlers up there. And uh, that would have been in the era about 1830, 1840. And uh, he was eventually killed by bushrangers uh, in, in Newport. Right. And those stories, because you're at, I used to go walking with the children or, you know, along that part of Palm Beach on the, the you know, the inside pit water part. And I remember being in the boat with Dad and going across pit water. And so the stories begin to kind of, in a way, kind of sing to me from the, the different places. And I cross with a ferry every weekend to go see my mum who lives over on in the central coast and I'd go past Lion Island, and I knew that there were people from Batonga who would have been Garingai people who actually saved a whole lot of people when there was a shipwreck there. So there's a lot of kind of stories about Aboriginal people being very kind of valiant in that kind of area. And my dad, when we'd row down the Hawkesbury River, he'd look up at the, the caves and he'd say, oh, the Aboriginal people here hung out, you know, stood out against the white man much longer than anyone else in the Sydney area, and he'd kind of puff up his chest, you know. And so, you know, us kids would look up and go, oh, imagine that we saw kind of Aboriginal warriors standing up there with, in the caves with their, with, you know, mm. with their spears. So place and historical research are really mm. important to me and to other historical novelists. And uh, when you mention Moraine, you know, in down Woolloomooloo area, that part of Sydney was an important meeting place for Aboriginal people. Gadigal men mm. used to perform corroborees for money on uh, where the domain is, and uh, the Gadigal people are very proud of that kind of history of them, of still living in Sydney and and um, having camps around uh, Woolloomooloo right up until the 1920s, you know, and you've got the long-time habitation of people in La Perouse mm. who are still the same original people who uh, were there to kind of tell Captain Cook to, to go back home. And uh, you've got the, those descendants, uh, the Timbury family, et cetera, mm. um, still living in uh, La Perouse today. So those long threads of history, I think it's very important to honour those. Yeah, and, I, and also just that story about where she's meeting other Aboriginal people who she is figuring out her sort of cultural and sort of social connection to because she spent so much time growing up Waibal away, you know, Whitefall away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when she goes back and meets and there's this sort of mutual uncertainty between her and them. And, but also, like, it's great the way that it's, it's kind of a little bit, there's a bit of tension there, but it's all fine and it's all, you know, everything, everything pans out obviously well. But um, I thought that was a really nice part too, that, that this, the sort of cultural protocols that are yeah. being followed. They're, they're often quite difficult parts to write about a novel. I guess it's easy to imagine, well, for me it was easy to imagine, uh, little Aboriginal children in a, a white school where, you know, she was handed over by her father. And th this kind of information is historically accurate. Some families gave up their children to 
Lachlan Macquarie. We're going right back to 1817 here. So his wife could educate them in English ways at a school called the Parramatta Native Institution. And uh, that's why my novel's called Benevolence, because it's the two-edged sword of a benevolent English approach to Aboriginal people. But the fact of the matter is half the children in the Native Institution were the survivors of the Appen Massacre, which happened in 1817 and was ordered by Governor Lachlan Macquarie. Well, he ordered men to go out and hunt down the Gunungurra people who were very valiant warriors up in the mountains and it ended up with massacring possibly 100 people up on the mountain. It's, it's still commemorated every day, that Appen Massacre. Mm-hmm. And some of those children who were had witnessed the horrific death of their families were brought back and put into the Parramatta Native Institution. So if that's benevolence, well, hmm. A two-edged sword. And for Mary, she's educated there, but her father had actually taken her to the school because he felt that she could be a a person who would be interpreting for for them in both English language and English ways in the Mm. hope that there can be some peace between the English and and the Darug people, the Burrabarungal people at that point. And so that was kind of, you know, the historical documentation behind what Mary does. But when she goes up into the mountains with her, lover she's only young a lot of the girls ran away from school when they were about 14 or 15 yeah. they find themselves a young aboriginal man and they just take off you know <laughs> they went sit around praying and scrubbing floors when they could be out in the bush with some exciting young man and uh so i totally kind of understood her wanting to follow him and but it's a courageous thing for her to do Mm. And, she, and at that particular historical stage in the colonisation of Australia and the invasion of Australia, Aboriginal clans were often decimated by both smallpox and by massacre and by simple dispersal, you know, people not being able to live together. And uh, so she ends up in the mountains with him. But, but you know, people are hungry. The tribe is hungry and they treat her in a somewhat wary way and, and she has to kind of navigate the cultural differences because she's been away from her people for six years and uh, Mm. doesn't always understand what's expected of her. Hello, Fenella Kernabone again. If you're enjoying this discussion, make sure you head over to the City Road podcast website to listen to the other six interviews in this series. All the details are on the City Road podcast and Festival of Urbanism websites. We would love to hear from you too, so tweet us at City Road Pod. And now back to the conversation. I have to say too, like um, I'm 40, so you know I'm sort of in the middle. So it's, you know, for, for some people, depending on where you want to pitch it, but you know, now I feel really lucky to read stories like this written by Aboriginal people, and particularly uh, around that era that, that you're talking about, that sort of frontier period of mm. you know and I was, I was just reminded when you were talking about that brokering sort of peace and and sort of relationship that her father that Mary's father was hoping that she could do down the track yes. there's that moment later in the book which I won't give anything away of I'll try not to but where the man genuinely comes and says what you know we we want to broker peace with you we want to stop fighting yeah. so, so I, that's such a powerful time and and i kind of have largely grown up you know in schools and storytellers hearing it written by largely non-aboriginal people I, the, the thing that i really enjoyed about the book is the sense of hope that i got from it and that 
you know, sometimes when, when you're reading a story or, or, or hearing a story, you're sort of teetering on that sort of, you're sort of hoping that it doesn't just go really tragic and sad and heavy. And I thought, I thought that, you know, how, how was that, was that something consciously that, that you thought you sort of knew where you wanted the book to go to, or was it, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd love to hear you talk about that, that balance between, between tragedy. Well, um, some writers would refer, there's two different sorts of writers, people say, people who are plotters and people who are um, seated their pants, you know, so that they, I'm a bit of both. I, the older I'm getting, I'm more a plotter because you waste a lot of time if you're doing it by the seat of your pants. But in some ways you've got to let a novel kind of right. take off in strange directions and it doesn't always go the way you're intending. And I think when my first few drafts I did of the novel and uh, Rachel Bin Salah from Magabala Press uh, was very helpful to me and she would say things like, Julie, she's reading a bit like a victim. And I'd be like, oh, no, 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 not another victim story. Uh, yeah. And so trying to find that resilience in my character and I, I guess, you know, when you write, a lot of your own life, you know, someone, uh, Alex Miller, the wonderful um, novelist once said, every single novel is a memoir. Now, I don't know what that says about people writing crime novels about murderers or something <laughs> like that. Not something not very nice, most probably. No. But um, the notion that you, you you mine your own stories in life. And I was a, you know, my character, Murrigan, you know, she has a, a child out of wedlock. I, I did that in the early 1970s when it wasn't. These days, oh, nobody gets married. You know, it doesn't really matter. But, in <laughs> you know, in the 1970s it wasn't like that. And right. um you know, in the early 1970s. And so that was something that I totally associated with a, a woman alone with a child, on, especially on the road. I, I mean, I was homeless with my child at one stage and uh, so I really identified with, you know, Mary's desperation. I never mm -hmm. abandoned mine, though. <laughs> anyway, I won't say any more of that story. Um, <laughs> there's a moment in the novel which I think um, University of Sydney architecture faculty will find very interesting, where she goes to live at a place called Gentleman's Holt. Mm. Now, Gentleman's Holt is now, I think, part of the National Park and you can go take your boat up there and on the Hawkesbury and you can stop there. It's called Gentleman's Holt. It's called Gentleman's Holt because Philip, uh, Captain Philip, went with his boat up there and at one stage he put up his hand and said, Gentleman, Holt, and that's where they stopped for the night. I love that. You know, you've lost the Aboriginal name of the place, but you've got, you know, Gentleman Holt. Wow. Anyway, um, and uh, it was a beautiful old stone house built by, half built by convicts back in the early 1800s. And uh, Colin James, a well-known um, lecturer at the University of Sydney Architecture Department, extraordinary visionary man, mm. he owned that house and he would take students up there to, to spend time. And I lived up there for about three months um, I was at University of New South Wales, but I had friends at, at, at uh, Uni of Sydney in the architecture faculty. And uh, we'd live in that house and we li lived on oysters and I grew corn and you had to fight off the kangaroos and the snakes. And it was great. And I had a little boy with me and I went everywhere in a canoe and I was chased by rapists down the river. You know, just a lot of the things that poor, poor Mary experiences. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I experienced in the uh, 1970s and 80s. So, um yeah, so you can take real life and then you can feed it into your characters and, and that way it becomes quite vivid because you're actually speaking from an intense personal experience. But, um, you know, never a victim, not in my life anyway. You know, you have to um, survive and, and triumph and that's what I hope she does, yeah. Yeah, I really, I was really inspired. I really uh, felt that Mary was a, is a powerful, strong woman, so 
I think that came through very strong. Um, the other thing I'd love to to hear about is um, your your use of language in the book of the, of the of the Dara language. Um, yeah. And here, like I sort of knew before I read it that that it, that it used language. I think I heard from somebody, but. It, I was, it was interesting when I was reading it because part of me was like really interested just from learning and trying to understand, but then sort of it got to a point where it felt really conversational. And when when Mary was was thinking and you know thinking with language, and also when she was uh, speaking, you know, like particularly when she was on her own and she was meeting different Aboriginal people, uh, whether she was you know on her own or whether she was with with uh, with, with white fellows. Um, and I just thought that, you know, that, that use of language and, and whether, what, what that was like for you to incorporate that language into the story. Really hard. <laughs> uh, I'm inspired by people like the Noongar historical novelist Kim Scott and, uh, you know, and you've got Tony Birch and Anita Heiss and various very prominent well-known Aboriginal writers who've um, attempted this and, and uh, with varying degrees of success, but I think all of them quite successfully. Uh, it's it's quite hard because um, the Darug language is not really a spoken language anymore. I think the last fluent Darug speaker uh, passed away, at, you know, in about, um, you know, 1900. Uh, but we do have some lists, uh, quite comprehensive lists of word, but with very, words, but with, with very little grammar. So I, I imagine sometimes the ancestors coming down and listening to my use of, of, of cowing trying to create a direct sentence and rolling on the floor with laughter at my appalling lack of understanding of, of basic Darug grammar. But um, a great pleasure to bring those words back. I think it's really, really important to celebrate Aboriginal languages that are at a risk of, of disappearing. And, uh, and there's certainly a huge movement amongst Aboriginal people to bring back both ceremony, song, painting, you know, all, all aspects of, of Aboriginal culture, but especially around the Sydney and Wollombi area, you know, some wonderful work being done up in Newcastle from in, at Wallatooka about men and women's ceremony. Yeah, so the language is terribly important. And um, I had to put an apology at the beginning of the book that I'd done my best. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I I really felt like the way that it would switch between and it was kind of like pigeon, you know, like it was that sort of fusion of the two. And not that I'm a linguist, so I'm probably speaking out of turn, but I, you know, I think that was the other part of it that I really enjoyed. But again, thank you very much for your time, Julie. And um, I really enjoyed reading about the book. Like I said, it was great to paint a really vivid picture of that period of time. And and just there were those moments in history that I've read about or heard about, whether in books or, or documentaries and things. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Oh, really well, I'll just say that it's available as an audio book now too. By It's all online, you know, you just go to Booktopia or something and get it as an audio book and it's beautifully read and uh, the language, uh, I had to record the my pronunciation of the language. Luckily, I've spent some time in Arnhem Land. I have a familiarity with Jambapoinu language and and a, I hope a bit of a, an idea of how language, that particular Darug language had to be spoken. But the audio book is beautiful. And the book Benevolence is going to be published by uh, HarperCollins next year in United oh. States and UK. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So that's excellent. That's a thrill for me. Yeah, but I'm writing a new book. I've finished this, this River of Bones, which is an Aboriginal crime novel about the death of the Darling River. Wow. Okay. That sounds amazing. I'd love to... It's very topical at the moment as well. That, that, oh, the, God. The oh, dial, yeah. The, the Barker, the, that beautiful river. Oh, yeah. Bring back the Barker. Mm. All right. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Preston. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Annie, Julie. And Thank you. Um, we'll speak to you later. Thanks. Thank you. Chut, chut, now. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Festival of Urbanism's Book Club podcast on City Road. My name's Fenella Kernerbone, Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney, the Public Talks program. And if you liked this discussion, don't forget there are another six interviews in this series. Kurt Iverson speaks with Elizabeth Farrelly about her book, Killing Sydney. Dallas Rogers sits down with Adam Morton to talk about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and Tom Slater to discuss his new book, Shaking Up the City. Dallas also chats with Shanti Robertson about her book, Temporality and Mobile Lives, and Vanessa Berry about Mirror Sydney. And we wrap up the series in Western Sydney with Catriona Menzies-Pike on her book, Second City, Essays from Western Sydney. All the details are up on the City Road podcast and Festival of Urbanism websites. See you next time.